As we come now again for the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be again in, in the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll take up the entirety of the chapter. Again, this is part of the long historical narrative in Nehemiah here. But, uh, but before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, you... You are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? Lord, would you guide us now by the light of your word? Show us here what is true. Help us to see and to believe by the power of your spirit. Guide us in wisdom and in truth. And we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Nehemiah chapter 6. Uh, we'll read the whole chapter, so we'll begin in verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let's meet together at Hakefarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop? while I leave it and come down to you. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So, so now come, and let us take counsel together. Well, then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have, have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, 
and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of God. Now, I'm sure you got all of that. Let's back up and see what's going on here. By this point... When we reach the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, the formerly ruined walls of Jerusalem, which have been ransacked now for a few centuries, have finally been rebuilt. The very centerpiece of the book of Nehemiah, which is the work on this wall, this wall has now been accomplished by the hand of God and the work of his people. There's still more events around the wall. There's a big holiday and a bunch of public gatherings that we have to look at. But at this moment, there's a good and satisfying sense that we made it. We got there, guys. We built the wall. And we get to see in this chapter the very last leg of the build right up to the end of it. Uh, The gaps in the wall have been closed. The breaches have been filled. All that's left is to set up a few doors and gates. A few hinges need to be put in place. But to get here, it's been a tough road, we know. Nehemiah has faced trouble externally outside of Jerusalem in the surrounding nation's threat of war against them. He's faced trouble internally dealing with uh, the Jews, their own people extorting money from each other and abusing their own poor. But now the trouble is not just external, it's not just internal, it's personal. This trouble is personal. The enemies of Jerusalem have now hung a target on Nehemiah's back. Basically, the thought is, if we can destroy the leader, then we can destroy the wall. And this is a reminder that there is a heavier sort of weight put upon leaders. And we need to pray for them We need to support and pray for leaders in our government, in our schools, and in our churches. You know, maybe this sounds a bit self-serving, and it is a little bit, but it really serves all of us. I'll ask you, please pray for your pastor. You know, I know firsthand how often leaders and pastors can be the target of fiery darts from all directions. And uh, I, we need God to strengthen our hands in order to do his work. So, so thank you uh, for praying for me and for our leaders here. Now, that's a rabbit trail. As I come back, as it happens with Nehemiah, this target on his back comes in a, th- a series of three scare tactics 
three scare tactics. So we'll look at each of these scare tactics, specifically to look at what the tactic, what the enemy say they're doing, what they're really doing, and then what Nehemiah does in response. Now, as we do this, we know Nehemiah is not designed to be a model of all things that we're always to do exactly what he does. But this process here, there's good wisdom in this that will help us guide us as we go about our lives as well. Let's look now at the three scare tactics. The first scare tactics from the enemy against Nehemiah is to send four letters of invitation. It's in the first verses here. Four letters of invitation. What, the, what these letters say, what the men say they're doing, at least, on the face, is that they're sending Nehemiah an invitation to meet at some neutral site, some spot far outside of Jerusalem in what's called the Plain of Ono. Um, and it seems like that's going to be some, uh, some attempt at diplomacy. Maybe there'll be some negotiation there. Basically, it's, hey, Nehemiah, I know we've had our tensions before. We almost came into war over this wall, but now we can see the war's basically done, so let's just let bygones be bygones and bury the hatchet. That's the impression of what they say. Now, Nehemiah knows that this is a ruse. It doesn't tell us how he knows. Maybe the plane of oh no made him think, oh no, I don't, I don't know how that uh, works. Uh, but uh, somehow he knows something's amiss. We assume probably that, that both sides of this conflict have been keeping a close watch on each other. So Nehemiah maybe even had informants or spies. Maybe he just got a good gut instinct about this over the course of these months. At any rate, he knows what they're really doing is not bringing peace they're there to bring harm, specifically to him. It's likely that they want Nehemiah dead. So basically, you know, the thought is, if we can get Nehemiah to go out, meet us at this kind of separate plane while he's away, traveling on, on his way to the plain of Ono, the people in Jerusalem would receive a message back. Dear Dear people of Jerusalem, we regret to inform you of an unfortunate incident. On Nehemiah's way to our meeting, he was met by a, I don't know, a pack of wolves. And sadly, Nehemiah is gone. Our condolences. That's what they're gunning for. Now, that doesn't happen because Nehemiah's response to these invites is just to give polite decline. He doesn't call out their deception. He doesn't make a whole big fuss over it. He doesn't need to engage much with every letter or social media post that he bumps into. He just sends them back a very short message. No thanks, I can't come. I still have plenty of work here to do and I'm busy. And so they send him a second letter and then a third letter and then a fourth letter and Nehemiah just gives the same simple no thanks. Nehemiah gives barely any time or thought or energy to this complete distraction. It's not worth his attention, so he just leaves it alone and lets it lie so that he can focus on the task of the wall that God has given him to do. The first scare tactic doesn't work, so the enemies now change to the second scare tactic, which is not a private letter or series of letters. It is now an open 
letter. This begins in verse 5 and following. There's a fifth letter. This one's different than the ones before. It's an open letter of accusation. Basically, the letter uh, says that there's an allegation against the Jews as they're building this wall that they're actually planning a rebellion. You know, Artaxerxes, we, he's barely a, a note now for us, but way back in chapter 1, the king of Persia, who, uh, he knows about Nehemiah's work on the wall. Artaxerxes, the Persian king, is the one who sent Nehemiah, who approved Nehemiah. He even supplied the material for Nehemiah to build the wall. So all of this, he's well aware of it, but the accusation now is that Nehemiah's secretly trying to position himself as a new king of Judah. The, there's a rumor that he's going to rise up as a rival king to Artaxerxes. So this letter then just says, hey, we're, we're not saying this ourselves necessarily, but, but we're just reporting what we've heard say among the nations. Word on the street is that you're running in a different direction that's not going to make the king happy. And, and that way you're going might even reach the ears of the king of Persia, and, and he might do something drastic to try to crush you. So, so, Nehemiah, why don't you come and take counsel with us? Surely we can work this out. That's what they say. What they're really doing in this open letter of accusation is still trying to get Nehemiah harmed, maybe even killed. And in making uh, these uh, letters, you know, uh, the private letters previously now public, sending out this open letter, they're, they're building a slander, a, an open threat against Nehemiah and the people. The goal is to try to scare the Jews, frighten them into dropping the work and giving up the wall, that basically the people in Jerusalem would go, uh-oh, well, we definitely don't want the Persian Empire, which is huge, to think tiny little Judah starting an uprising. We're going to get crushed. Well, maybe it's better if we just quit now. We leave it alone. The wall's close enough. We're just going to count it good. And that's what the enemy wants, but that's not what happens. Instead, Nehemiah's response to this open letter is different than his prior polite, polite decline. He doesn't just say no thanks as he did before. Now he gives a solid denial of the accusations made against him and the people. He sends a message back that, that says, nope, none of what you've said is true. There's no rebellion over here. And that would have been enough of a reply, but then Nehemiah adds, You've invented these accusations out of your own mind. If this is not just something you've heard as the word on the street. You started this rumor that is false, and we both know that you're lying. So as Nehemiah before replied in a way that was a very cool response, now he's coming in hot. That then leads the enemies to turn to the third scare tactic here, which is to pull an inside job. To pull an inside job. Before they've been working from the outside, sending letters uh, from, from themselves, but here the enemies hire a guy 
named uh, Shemaiah. Shemaiah is a Jew, one of the people of God, who lives in Jerusalem. He's probably even a priest at the temple, so a good religious Jewish person. He's someone in-house. And, and, and Shemaiah says, Nehemiah, or Shemaiah says, I'm going to help you, Nehemiah. Listen, the enemies, they're, they're going to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. So why don't you come with me and, and we'll go into the temple and hide. We'll close the doors and you will be safe there. That's what's said. What's really happening, though, is Shemaiah is a sort of hit man. He's a type of Judas, really. He's been hired to try to get Nehemiah to violate the law of God and to do what is forbidden by going into the temple. Because the temple is a holy place. There are parts of the temple where no one except the priests can even set foot inside. And, and Shemaiah saying, come on in. There was a scene like this some years prior. So these are the days way far back when, when Judah was still a, a, a real nation and Jerusalem still had their own kings. You maybe recognize the name of the former king Uzziah. When uh, there's a day that Uzziah, the king of, of Judah, enters into the temple and he says he's going to burn incense to the Lord. Now that's not his job. The king doesn't get to do whatever he wants. That's only the work of the priests. And as Uzziah tries to come into the temple, 80 priests kind of uh, surround him and try to stop him, but, but Uzziah pushes his way in anyway. And when he gets inside of the temple, the Lord strikes Uzziah with sudden leprosy, an outbreak on his forehead. And that causes sudden fear, of course, and Uzziah and everybody else just sort of makes it split out of the temple. But King Uzziah is now a leper, and he gets exiled, having to live in a separate house until the day he dies. That had happened generations prior. So now, by luring Nehemiah into the temple, we assume that Shemaiah and, and the men who hired him may also want a similar sort of thing to happen, that he'll get leprosy, uh, maybe even die as, as, as Nehemiah would be struck by the hand of God. But at least, at least, they want Nehemiah out of the way. If they can get him to sin in a significant public way, it's going to degrade his leadership and give him a bad name. The goal is not just to scare Nehemiah into running for his life. The goal here is to show the people that, that Nehemiah would be willing to violate the law of God in order to save his own skin. And that, of course, would lead to all sorts of questions and taunts. How, how are we supposed to trust Nehemiah if he uses the holy place as his hiding place? That's what they're really after here in this third scare tactic. Now, Nehemiah's response is to refuse Shemaiah's help. He says, no thanks. I'm not going into the temple of God. How could I do that and live, he says. But Nehemiah also here prays. 
And this is a particular type of prayer. Nehemiah has been praying plenty before, even just earlier in this chapter. God, strengthen my hands, he says. But here we get a particular kind of prayer called imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayer. If you haven't heard that word, that's okay. You don't need to know the name. You just need to know what it is. Imprecatory prayer is a prayer of God's judgment or curse upon someone. So Nehemiah is not praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Nehemiah here is praying, Lord, they know exactly what they're doing. And Lord, I want you to remember their deeds against them. I want you to deal with them according to your good justice. That may sound shocking, but, but this isn't the first time we've heard a, a similar sort of thing from Nehemiah. Back in chapter 4, he prayed against his enemies like this. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Don't cover their guilt, nor let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah is calling for the judgment of God upon these enemies. And this kind of prayer isn't unique to Nehemiah either. We hear in, in the book of the Psalms, David say many sorts of imprecatory prayers. He says words that are, that are shocking to hear, that almost sound unacceptable to ask in just talking, much less in praying. He says, crack the teeth of the wicked in their mouths. He says, let them be in, uh, ensnared and destroyed in the nets that they have set out for me. He says, Lord, would you overtake them with your burning anger and blot them out of the book of the living? Those are some intense prayers. Now, we should be very careful with things like this. Very careful with imprecatory prayers of curse or judgment. We know as Christians, we want to be a people who are, who are not quick to anger. We want to be a people who do not avenge ourselves. We want to be a people who, in general, pray for our enemies, not against them. You know, we want to follow in the ways of Jesus, who when he was crucified by his own enemies, Jesus didn't call down curse on them, but like a lamb sled to the slaughter, he was silent and did not open his mouth. In general, Christians are to pray for blessing and not curse. Still, Nehemiah is not wrong here. David is not wrong when he prays these things. There are times even when a Christian may wisely, rightly, pray for God's judgment upon enemies. Now, 
These have been the three scare tactics of the enemies in Nehemiah's response. We know that Nehemiah's enemies want to stop the work of God on this wall. And the summary of the way they're doing it is just by trying to fill the people with fear. They want to fill the people with fear. And in the end, those scare tactics fail. Not only does the wall get built, uh, but the fear gets flipped on its head and turned back on the ones who were trying to inflict it. It's at the end of our text in, in verse, well, let me pick up verse 15. So the wall was finished in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and they fell in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That the ones who tried to make the Israelites afraid are now afraid themselves. Now, what does all of this mean for us? What are we to do with events like this? There are many things we could take from this, but uh, one, at least, is for us, all of this highlights how, in general, God's people are not to be a fear-driven people. Did you hear me? If you checked out, let me say it again. In general, God's people are not to be a fear-driven people. You know the most frequent command in the entire Bible? More than commands to love, more than commands to give, more than commands to pray, is the command to fear not. That we would not be fear-driven in general. I have to say in general... Uh, be, that we are not fear-driven because there is, we know, some proper place for fear. There are places for it that are fitting. You know, if you're driving on the highway and the oncoming car swerves into your lane, there's probably a surge of fear that's going to help you be aware to react in a good way. That's good. We also teach our kids not to touch things like fire because it can burn you. And that produces a healthy sort of fear. It's also good to have a sort of fear of God. That we Christians want to be a healthy, God-fearing people. So some fear is good. It is good to be fear-aware, but not fear-driven. It's good to be fear-aware, but not fear-given. And we don't fear, not because the fear is irrational, nor because there's nothing to be afraid of. The threats are real and menacing. But we don't fear because we know that God is with us. Before Jesus was killed, he told his disciples, friends, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, who's going to be with you, and I'll leave you with my peace. And so, don't let your hearts be troubled, and don't let them be afraid. 
Don't let your hearts be afraid, he says, even when I'm gone. Jesus assumes there that that fear is naturally going to try to find its way in. It's going to work its way into my system. But fear is not just some emotion that I can't do anything about. It's just a, a trigger that gets pressed in me that I just have to give over to. He says, no, no, don't let yourself be afraid. Don't let fear control you, but fear not And you don't have to do this by your own power. The ongoing help of the Spirit is going to work in you to do that. But fear not. This is always important. It's the reason why fear not stretches the full span of the Bible. But it's particularly important to us because we live in a a society now where scare tactics are everywhere. I'm sure this is no news to you, uh, but fear is a very powerful motivator. And it's especially powerful when it's subtle and we don't recognize it. Let me give you an example. And I chose this example because I don't want Nehemiah's wall to get confused with, with other sort of walls that are different. So in the United States... There has been, over the past few years, some effort to build a wall on our southern border of Mexico. And when when that wall was pitched as an idea to the public, the way the wall was presented, the motive, the need for the wall was this. Without a wall, there's going to be a flood of people coming across with loads of drugs and crime and rapists. These illegals are going to come and take our jobs and take our homes and take our money, and instead they're just going to bring a fearful pack of lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers. Now hear me closely. My point in mentioning this is not whether the claims on the wall are true or not. It's not whether a physical uh, border to our country is an effective approach or not. My point is not whether we should have open borders or not. Those are whole different discussions for different places. My point here is simply for us to recognize how common the rhetoric of fear is used to drive us. And it's not an accident. These are intentional scare tactics to get you to do something. And if you think I'm being biased in bringing up the wall, Uh, We know that there's not just one guilty person or party on this. There's plenty of blame on all sides. You know, we we are constantly being bombarded by alarmist claims from every angle. You'll recognize all these. You know how often we hear how the world is burning up with climate change. Oh, my. 
How transgender people are taking over our bathrooms, oh my. How plastics are filling our oceans and, and giving us cancer, oh my. How the housing market is on the edge of another great recession, oh my. How women's rights are being ripped away, oh my. How schools are being infected with some sort of gay agenda, oh my. How artificial intelligence is going to kill off all of our jobs, oh my. And in an election year, there's this ominous buzz that if you don't vote, we're all doomed. Oh my. That's the push. Now in this, I'm not saying that there aren't serious issues here. That there isn't some measure of right and wrong, some things that might even cause us some concern that we, we should want to act upon. But I am saying that we need to be aware of these scare tactics so our panic buttons are not being constantly pushed to move us. This fear includes not just all the big global social fears, by the way. This includes the very fears that infect our own minds and become tools of the enemy. Things like fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of missing out, fear of being alone, fear of pain, and fear of death. As God's people, we refuse to be filled with the sort of fear that would drive us. We reject that. It may sound simple to say it this way, but it really is true. The way to keep from being driven by the fears of this world is to be driven instead by faith in our God. No, no matter what scare tactic any of us may meet, God will always, always be bigger. There is nothing that God does not see, nothing that God does not rule, and nothing that God cannot handle. God can and will give you supernatural fear, courage over the fears that you face. So do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid, but instead be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Pray with me. Lord, apart from you, we are lost but we are not apart from you. Lord, would you strengthen our hands? Make us wise to follow ways that are good and help us turn away from a fear that controls us to a faith that would lead us. Strengthen our faith in Jesus that we would follow after you all our days. We ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.